Hi friends, and welcome to the Relove and Rise podcast. I am your host, Amanda Gazzola, former busy bee chasing her dreams to an energizing self-love advocate. I want the kind of life that has fun, ease, joy, and flow, which is why each week I will bring you an episode that will help you move forward to building the life that you want so that you can elevate and soar. So get ready with me and join me as we take one step forward in that direction today. Catherine has dedicated her legal practice to helping those who have suffered life-changing situations. Her job is to help put families back together after these tragic events. She is an advocate for women and children who believe firmly in advocating for their rights, both inside and outside the legislation context. Outside of work, she is a mom, a wife, a dog mom, a wellness enthusiast, and she has created a mental health podcast for lawyers and believes deeply in giving back to the community, both professional and the community she lives in. I am so excited to have her on my podcast. You guys are going to learn so much. Enjoy the show. All right, and welcome to the Relove and Rise podcast. I am so excited for this episode today. We are speaking with the beautiful Catherine Shearer, who is a lawyer. And one of the topics that we're going to be really talking about today is human birthrights. And this is something that's near and dear to my heart right now because I am pregnant, giving birth in May. And I would be lying if I said I wasn't uh, nervous giving birth in a pandemic right now. But at the same time, it is important to really know about, you know, what is birthrights and how can we navigate it? How can we be an advocate for ourselves? How can we feel empowered with our decisions? And Catherine's definitely going to help us navigate that today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here with you. And I really appreciate this opportunity to discuss something that I am very passionate about with you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, before we get started, let's get people to know a little bit about you, but you're a lawyer, which is truly amazing. And if at that, like how, like, have you always wanted to be one? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So I wasn't sold when I was in high school on uh, education. <laughs> to be honest, I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. My desire was at that time was to become a hairdresser. Um, and I ended up taking a year off before I went to undergrad and I was working at a bank. Um, and my brother was rather disappointed in my decisions and he encouraged me to apply to undergrad and said, even if you don't use it, like, it'll be fun. You'll enjoy it. He was in, I think his second year at the time. And so, uh, I applied and I told him that I wouldn't go unless I got into the university of Guelph because I didn't want to move anywhere. Um, so I, I ended up going to undergrad and it was probably in my first semester um, that I realized I really enjoyed school and I really liked learning. Um, I was getting really good grades and decided to switch into the criminal justice and public policy uh, program at the University of Guelph. And as soon as I did that and started to learn more about the justice system and um, the policies and the laws, that kind of solidified it for me. Um, coupled with that was the fact that when I was growing up, my grandmother lived with us and uh, she took care of us a lot. And she was in a very awful car accident. 
and had spinal cord and brain injuries as a result, and she never worked again. So um, seeing the, the impacts that that accident had on her life and how it really changed her, not only um, physically, but mentally, like it really changed her to her core. Um, and the legal process that she went through, the lawsuits as a result, were not very kind. Um, and I saw the help that she needed and I decided, you know, I have the ability to do that. I should do that. Mm, that's so much passion behind that. Just uh, like that happened with my grandparents and I ended up losing my Nono and my Nona became, uh, she couldn't move her arm and she was definitely left disabled. Plus she doesn't speak English and it did change the demeanor of who they are as for the independence. And like, you want to do some so much, but they like, but at that time I was like only eight years old, but like it was, I can totally understand like where you, you feel for them and you want to be there. And that's so nice that you could, that you had something that was tangible because you already, was that like when you were attending the undergrad undergrad university that that happened, the accident? No, the accident happened um, probably when I was, uh, I would probably be eight or 10. Oh, so so same. Like, so you saw it as well. Wow. Yeah. So growing up with that and just kind of having that in the back of my mind, I think part of the reason why I, I mean, at that time I'd always said when I was younger that I was interested in being a lawyer. Um, and then through high school, I kind of just gave up and I didn't want to be in school anymore. So once Uh, I was in university and I really gained that confidence because things were going well and I was getting good grades, um, that's when I was like, oh, this is a possibility and this is something I'm passionate about. So I should pursue it. That makes sense. Cause you're more like in university, you're more in like in all the courses that kind of feed that passion a little bit more as opposed to all in, in school, like in high school, you're all like kind of branched out with like all the academics that you have to complete in order to graduate. Yeah. And it was hard even going into um, law school with that kind of in the back of my mind personal injury lawyers have a really terrible reputation. And that was something that was holding me back from entering that specific area of law because nobody wants to go through the process of going all the way through law school, spending almost a decade in university um, to come out the other side and have people judge you. Mm-hmm. And you know, most people go to law school and they're, oh, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer or, uh, you know, something like that. And so it was hard to find the courage to follow that passion. Um, So I did, I took a a summer position in a personal injury boutique, um, learned more about the area of law. I was very passionate about it. So I did follow it. Um, But then even later, probably a year or so into my career as a lawyer, I started to have doubts about pigeonholing myself so early on in my career and switched over to practicing general law. And uh, it took about three months before I I realized I I hated general litigation and was very passionate about personal injury. And that's when I was like, you know, I had the ability at that point to really follow my passion. It's sometimes good to figure out stuff that you don't want and you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, but you, at the same time, you don't know what those wings look like until you start expanding them. And then you're like, okay, I found my niche and like where I'm going to thrive and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. And, and then the, the confidence that comes with that as well. And to not worry about um, what other people might say or think, because 
starting out when, especially when I was relatively young, um, it's, it's tough to, to have a label so early on, you know, to, to be part of a profession that is so widely made fun of, especially in that particular, um, subset of injury law, injury law. How have you made it work for you, injury law? Like, what have you done? Because, again, you have that fear of judgment a little bit, but how have you changed it around to make it feel like it's something that you can take and be feel powerful with and empowered by as opposed to, like, how you felt before? Is it through experience or...? Just by doing the work, you really are changing people's lives. So you have your clients come to you at the, the moment in their life when it's pretty much the worst thing that has ever happened to them or their child. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that in and of itself can be very difficult, but you, in a personal injury um, litigation matter, it usually takes about three to five years to resolve. And you're a big part of the rehabilitation team. So you're putting families back together. You're helping them get um, the treatment, both physical and psychological treatment. You're helping them um, cope with the changes um, because oftentimes their their lives or their child's lives will be completely different forever. And there is a big adjustment period um, and helping them through that and giving them some light at the end of the tunnel. And then when you do come to a resolution um, and they, they have that closure and they're able to move on with their lives, it's so meaningful um, that you no longer care about those labels that are associated with being a personal injury lawyer. Uh, That makes total sense because like you build that relationship with them along the way. Is it hard? Do you find that you get yourself attached or do you know how to like, at first was was it like that? Or did you find that balance in order to like, you know, keep work separate? Like how do you kind of work through that with not taking it fully on, but knowing how to protect yourself or do you kind of, does it change by subject by subject? Yeah. So, I mean, that's always something when you're empathetic, um, it's very difficult to create those boundaries that you need to be successful, um, both personally and professionally. And that is a bit of a game that you play, especially early on in finding where those boundaries are and learning to identify which cases you're going to over identify with and perhaps won't be the best advocate because you really do need to remain objective. So for me, finding the the cases where I am very passionate about the cause, um, but I'm not going to be blurred. My vision is not going to be blurred by how much I sympathize with the case. And some of that comes from experience as well. So um, especially in doing litigation for children as a mom, those lines can be blurred. Um, The more you do it, the easier it is to differentiate and put in a perspective Um, and knowing when to take a step back Mm. is important because you can just kind of remind yourself and then continue on, but being able to, to remain objective is, is very important in that process. I totally get what you're saying. And on top of that, do you find that every time like you, you like do a case, do you learn something from it in order to change for the next time? Like, or, and is everyone different? Um, it's because like, it's everyone's so unique. Yes. Every case is so different and there's not one, 
um, fact pattern that you will have that is the same as the next. And so there, that's one lovely part of the job is that it's always changing. You're always having to use your brain um, to find creative solutions to big problems. And um, it can be very um, exciting because you are always, you know, looking at things from a fresh perspective, but at the same time, there are the fundamentals that are the same. So you're applying the same um, legal principles, Mm -hmm. which is nice because each case then does help you form a foundation for the next case. 100%. So your, one of your superpowers is optimism. And why is it optimism? Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So especially in the line of work that I do, but also in personal um, experiences, that's something that I've always been very good at doing. And that is to find a silver lining, um, even in some really awful situations. And I think that makes a superpower because it really helps you stay positive, focused and have hope so that you're moving on to the next thing and you don't get stuck or sick with worry. Mm-hmm. Truth, truth. Uh, this is awesome. This is awesome. So I'm so glad we got to kind of find out your background a little bit, just because like, when, when did you start becoming more of an activist when it came to birth rights? Like, when did that start becoming more of a thing? I didn't even know it was a thing until I'm actually in it now. So now I'm like, wanting to know and learn so much because I didn't realize that this is um, something that it's very common for women. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. First of all, it is a global movement right now. So this is not something that is common. Um, it's certainly not something that is litigated right now. Um, these are developing areas of law. So it's a new area of law. There's no, there's no real precedence. Um, we look to our neighbors, um, and to the South, and they have a pretty good bar association set up for birthrights. Um, the UK has been very vocal in birthrights. Um, this is something that is picking up speed and momentum globally. Um, and so it's something that I have been diving into relatively recently in terms of the, the actual birthrights piece of things and not just medical malpractice. Um, and the reason why I got involved started when I was pregnant in 2018. And I realized there were so many difficult decisions that you have to make as a pregnant person that often have risks associated with both scenarios or all scenarios. So for example, you might have option A and the risks are X, Y, and Z. And then you have option B and the risks are X, Y, and Z. And sometimes those risks are better for mom. And sometimes the risks are better from baby and you have to make this decision. But what's happening and often happening is that the right to informed decision, which is the biggest right. So that's to make sure that you have all of the knowledge, you know, all the pros and cons before you make a decision isn't happening in the medical context. And your choice then becomes blurred. And sometimes we see coercion as well. So when I was going through this process, I did, because it's my nature, a ton of research into 
everything. And I hired a doula who really helped in um, formulating a birth plan and helping me ask the right questions to both my OB and my midwives. Um, and so going through that process was very enlightening. And then um, several months ago, almost a year ago now, I would guess, um, I came together with some amazing ladies who want to start the Canadian chapter of the Birthrights Bar Association. So for the past several months, I have been working with a team of ladies to get this organization up and running so that we can start producing um, information on a bigger scale to get that out there to help people make the decisions that are right for them during their pregnancy, labor, and delivery. That is, sorry, I was just fascinated. So it took me a while to realize that you're done your, your sentence there. That's amazing that we are, you're starting a new movement in order to help women out there because yeah, we're in such a interesting time, especially with the pandemic. And I feel like our birth rates are even more blurred than ever because we're trying to find we're trying to figure out a protocol. We're trying to work with our anxiety. We're trying to work with, you know, practitioners that are stressed. They're like even more stressed than they already were because of everything, the overwhelming uh, people at the hospital now. So it's a very interesting time and what a great movement to get a bunch of women together in order to help us to navigate our own inner feelings because there's so much that we're even dealing with as well. So it's just like, it's an emotional roller coaster and it takes a physical toll on our body. So that's what's so awesome. Um, what, so what are the most common violation of rights that you see, um, since you've started, uh, this movement? So basically there are a lot of violations that are occurring. Um, and that is not to say that every hospital, every OB, every midwife, every nurse is um, at fault here. <clears throat> it is, <clears throat> excuse me, a handful of bad apples and a culture that allows that to persist. It's the same as any profession. So in the legal profession, most lawyers, excellent lawyers, and there are a handful of really terrible lawyers. Um, it's the same in any profession. And so right now, um, there is an issue with human rights being violated um, for pregnant women who are going through um, pregnancy, labor, delivery, and postpartum. And this is all in the context of something called obstetric violence. And so it's kind of twofold. Everybody has the right to have um, a pregnancy, a delivery, or any gynecological appointment free from physical abuse, sexual abuse, coercion, bullying, um, having any kind of procedures done without your consent. So lack of consent is really one of the biggest elements here um, and lack of informed consent. So that's really where a lot of um, issues come in is when, when patients aren't provided with 
all of the information they need to make an informed decision. And that's where we're seeing some coercion um, and some physical and verbal abuse or bullying. Um, I'll, some common violations, I think that's what your question was. So I'll answer that now. Some common <laughs> violations good. Um, are having a membrane str- uh, sweep, like a stretch and sweep done without consent. And that is to induce labor. Uh, it is something that you have to provide consent for. Uh, the same with any um, internal physical examinations, you need to provide your consent for that. They don't have carte blanche to touch your body. That becomes especially important um, for victims of sexual assault. Uh, yes. And um, it's important to realize that physical examinations without consent are a violation of your rights. Um, and for some people that is going to affect them more than others. Uh, but at the same time, it's just a very basic right. Having an episiotomy without consent, that's something that you see. How common is that one? I feel like I hear that one a lot more than the stretch and sweep, like for sure. But I don't know what I don't know. That's just one, a common one that my, um, like I've heard through people. Sometimes in the situations, um, I mean, it, it is common. It was more common in the past than it is now. I can, I can tell you that. And, and the reason for that is through research, which I'm a big advocate of, um, they have determined that uh, an episiotomy isn't always necessary rather than uh, the benefits of having the, women, the woman tear naturally. Yes. Um, so there are some situations when an episiotomy may be deemed medically necessary. Even at that point, you still have to give consent. Um, you can't just have an episiotomy cut for you. Um, some of the other issues surrounding episiotomies are um, something called the husband stitch. And that's when um, they're sewing you up either from the episiotomy, more often with an episiotomy than not, um, but they, when they are sewing you up afterwards, um, an extra stitch or two are added internally to tighten the vagina for the sole purpose of increasing pleasure for the husband. And this is a, a, a terrible practice. Um, it's not something that is as common this day and age. Um, there is no medically necessary reason for that. Um, and it actually has been proved not to increase pleasure for the husband and actually makes sex very, very painful for the recipient of this stitch because of the scar tissue. Um, it's my understanding that it doesn't stretch properly the way that your normal tissue would, um, causing very painful sex. And in some cases, that means that there are people out there who cannot have sex ever again. Exactly. Oh, my God. And so that's something that is is very challenging to litigate. Um, but oftentimes, you will have a witness in the room who will hear the doctor say, don't worry, I'll make her nice and tight or some offhand remark um, coupled with the, the evidence of the incision. Um, and that generally in terms of recourse falls into what would be called a botched episiotomy um, because that is something that is, is difficult to prove in a, in a litigation world, but something that is happening and there are a lot of people out there um, that are pretty vocal about it. Um, 
another uh, common violation would be a forced or coerced intervention or cesarean. So as a woman in labor, you have a right to decline any medical intervention. So if your doctor says, you know, you're at 40 weeks, um, so we're just going to induce you. Yes. And there's no further explanation to that. And and many people may not know that there are some risks associated with being induced. Um, And if you are not properly informed of those, um, those risks, and then make the decision to go ahead with the induction, that's a violation of your rights. But also if you say, no, thank you, I do not want to be uh, induced, you shouldn't be subject to coercion or threats like your baby will die. Yeah, but that, like that's that's what freaks me out is because you're looking to the doctor for um, like the, the, you're putting your heart and soul into this doctor trust, and so what you think whatever they think is like what's best for you. So it's like you're, man, you're you are manipulated, but you don't even know because you're just going with like because it's a doctor. He knows everything. He knows the best. He has the best interest for me. So this is where it's just like how do you know? And like this is like where you have to trust yourself and trust your body. So that, what, oh, that, that's the part where I'm freaked out a little bit. As you should be. It's a very, very challenging place to be. Um, and these are not decisions to be taken lightly by any means. That's why you need to, throughout the course of your pregnancy, really be looking at the resources available to you to learn and educate yourself because in the spur of the moment, especially during labor, you're going to have a lot of decisions that need to be made yes. and you won't have the, the, the bandwidth to fully appreciate the risks, the consequences, the pros, the cons, et cetera, because you're not in that space. So preparing yourself before childbirth throughout the pregnancy by speaking to your midwives, to speaking to your OBs, um, there are so many amazing resources out there like evidence-based birth. So the whole point in birth rights is to make the woman feel empowered in their decisions and to make those decisions that are right for them. It's not, oh, you should have um, an epidural or you shouldn't have an epidural. It's, oh, you need to be able to properly exercise your right of choosing whether or not to have an epidural and to be fully informed of the risks and the, the benefits of both and when those risks might change. For example, we know from the, the research that um, episiotomies aren't a normal course of the delivery anymore, whereas years ago, it was standard practice just to cut an episiotomy during delivery. But there are still certain situations where a, an episiotomy might be beneficial. And so educating yourself on when those are and putting that into a birth plan saying, yes, I consent to an episiotomy, but only if this occurs or this occurs, then your birth partner and you are fully equipped to make these decisions on the spot when the pressure is on, so to speak. I don't remember what your actual question was. You're answering it. I believe like what I asked at the beginning, and I think you've been going through the common uh, violation of rights. And so you're kind of explaining like what the common ones are and going into depth, which I really appreciate each and every one of them sharing, you know, 
like what happens and you know what you need to do be an advocate for yourself so you've been doing it and answering it but i don't know how many more of the common ones are left okay perfect um i would just circle back to the forced or coerced interventions um because that can be a very difficult time for you during delivery because it's number one i mean Childbirth is very natural and there's nothing that you should be afraid of, especially, um, you know, you're, you've got a good medical team. You need to be able to trust them, but you need to be able to have the conversation. The discourse must start much before any signs of labor. you you need to know that you can trust your medical professionals, your team, um, because if you have certain desires for certain situations, they need to be respected. And we need to determine much before um, the birth is, is starting um, that those choices will be respected. But you can't know what your choices are if you've never had a baby. That's okay. That's what I was about to bring up. Like first time moms, like this is like a, a whole new world that you don't even know what your rights are. What's right. You like, and especially if you've never really, really ever stayed in a hospital before, like how the protocols go, how interaction are with doctors, like all that stuff. So mm-hmm. exactly. So educating yourself throughout the course of the pregnancy is pretty much the most important step to help yourself feel empowered. Uh, but also to know what the the climate is with your healthcare team, because if you are you've done all the research and you've taken the position that you don't want an epidural because um, the literature and the evidence suggests that if you have an epidural, then that can increase the chances of having a cesarean. It increases the length of your delivery. And it can lead to something called the cascade of interventions. So if you've decided, I do not want to have an epidural, but every five seconds when you're at the hospital, someone is asking if you want an epidural. That happened with a friend of mine. Like they came at least seven times. And I like, and she's like, no, by the end, like was just like frazzled. And that stresses you even more for this birth that's supposed to happen. That's right. And so you need to be able to, to have your healthcare team on board with you to prevent that, because the more stress that you're putting onto the situation, yes. the, the increased chance there are that there might be some complications because the literature, the evidence shows us that the more relaxed and calm the environment is, the more um, successful or easy the experience will be. And that's the goal is to have a positive birth experience for everyone involved. Um, so, so really knowing what your options are and knowing why it's important, if that's your choice, not to have an epidural, why, and that your advocate that is with you, your birthing partner can advocate on your behalf so that you can focus on the task at hand. But also if you're going to dive deep into the literature and far before you're ever, um, in the, the, the delivery ward, or if you're at home having a home birth before any of those things happen is to make sure that you know that there may be situations where it is recommended that you have the epidural. And in that case, that might mean that you transfer your home birth to a hospital, or if you're in the hospital and you've said no a hundred times to the epidural, and now it's being recommended for X, Y, and Z reasons, knowing that before you are in the hospital giving birth 
is going to really help you feel empowered because you're going to say, okay, now we're at this part of the situation where we know it can be helpful and we'll reduce interventions. And my midwife or my OB is telling me this. And so I'm going to take their recommendations. So you're still having that choice. You still have that power. And it's not a surprise to you when you are in a very difficult situation. I love that. I love that. Do you know what the percentage or approximate percentage of women that don't feel like they're in control of labor? Do you know what that would look like that number? You know what? I don't know what that number is. Um, but I would suggest that it's fairly common. Mm-hmm. I totally do too, for sure. And is every hospital different with the rules, regulations, rights um, when it comes to visitors or PPE? Like, or is it locally different? Like, this is stuff I don't know. I'm just pondering mm-hmm. these questions because I feel like, and we're in a situation now where every city is different because of um, circumstances. Yes, COVID has added another element into the whole birth process. And that's, it is unfortunate because there is very valid reasons on both sides of the table to Mm -hmm. either um, increase or uh, reduce people's rights, essentially. Um, So for example, in Ontario, before the pandemic, you were allowed to have two support people with you at all times. So in In our planned birth, I was going to have my husband and a doula, and one of those people were going to switch out occasionally with my mom. Now, in the pandemic, you're only allowed one support person, and you can't do any switching out. Mm -hmm. So that means if you wanted to have a doula present at your birth, you're going to have to choose whether or not your, your partner is present for your birth or your doula is present for your birth. Or if you want to have your, if it's more important to have your partner at the birth than a doula, you can have a, a, a doula attend virtually. Oh, interesting. Not the same, no, but still can be helpful. And doulas yeah. play a yeah. really big role in helping you advocate for your rights and providing you with that information beforehand because they have a wealth of knowledge and they're experienced in advocating for your choices and helping you to change your mind. Because the whole point of having rights is to be able to exercise them. And you have the right to change your mind. If you've decided all along that you don't wanna have an epidural and the moment you get to the hospital, you're like, give me an epidural. That is your right. And you should choose that. Um, but sometimes you just need a, a healthy reminder from your support person of what your, your wishes were. Um, and so it, a doula can really be helpful in that. Um, but with COVID, because of those restrictions, it would be a, a choice. And sometimes people do choose to have the doula and not their partner present because of other kids at home. Um, and they don't want to mix um, with family right now because of the, the COVID climate and that kind of thing. Um, but that's just one example. Yeah. And that totally. can be tough. And not yeah. having your support person um, is is a big deal, especially throughout the, the pregnancy as well, because you're going to your appointments. You're going to your appointments without your partner. Your partner's not hearing the heartbeat for the first time. They're not going to be at that first ultrasound. Um, and that first ultrasound can be relatively traumatic for someone who has experienced pregnancy loss in the past. Mm-hmm. So, 
um, I mean, one of the things that you can do is to ask if there are any exceptions. Sometimes there are exceptions to the rules and to answer your question, now each hospital is, is quite different. Um, each hospital is already going to have their own set of policies um, regardless of COVID, but now with COVID there are you know certain policies that are specific to certain hospitals, certain uh, medical buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing what those policies are in advance are helpful and knowing and asking your healthcare providers if there are any exceptions to those policies is helpful because you may fall into one of the exceptions and you may be able to have your support person with you. You may need to have an advocate present with you. Um, if there are any complications with your pregnancy, you can usually request additional in-person appointments. Um, so if something has been confirmed that there is um, a higher risk um, being checked by your midwife or your OB in person rather than virtually is something that you can request. Um, and I, I do want to put it out there that it's not mandatory for you to wear a mask. I when was going to ask that question because I've, my one person that I know in particular, she has asthma and she had her baby and she was required to wear a mask and she was having trouble breathing. And the nurse guy just literally just put it away from her face so she could be able to breathe. And she was having trouble catching her breath, which made her pregnancy even more complicated where it ended up in a C-section because of the stress that she was feeling because she couldn't breathe. Yes. Yes. The stress and, and the stress is the important part. And here, what you want to know is, is talk about that with your healthcare providers before you're in labor. So most hospitals have a policy that you should be wearing a mask. If you choose not to wear a mask, you need to let your, your healthcare providers know in advance so that they can gear up with additional PPE. And that's the standard protocol in most hospitals. Um, hospital policies are not laws. I would like to repeat hospital policies are not laws. Mm. Um, just because something is a hospital policy does not mean it's um, okay or not a violation of your human rights. Uh, in the case when you're wearing a mask and you cannot breathe and you feel like you are suffocating because yes. it is a, a very um, physical experience, you should not be forced to wear a mask. And that just boggled my mind where there, it's a hospital. They should know that that would cause like uh, not be a good experience for the baby and for the mom, especially if like they can't breathe and breathing is the biggest part of birth just boggled my mind. Yeah. That's the first time I've, I've heard, um, of a hospital enforcing those policies. Mm. Um, I know that it is recommended and any person that I've counseled on that have spoken to the, the team in advance have been able to have a mask free delivery. I also think that had she have known that she could say, no, I'm not wearing a mask because of this, um, like it might've been different, but because, you know, it was May, she was, we're still in the thick of the pandemic. So she just was doing what she thought that she had to do. So there's that, but it's not knowing your rights is kind of where I'm going with that part where it's just like, exactly. Yeah. It's so important to educate yourself on these things that you could foresee being an issue because when you are in the thick of things, it's very hard to advocate for yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. it's very hard to advocate for yourself, period. Throw in a laboring human being 
-hmm. And it's next to impossible to advocate for yourself at that time. So really being prepared for all the what ifs um, and having those discussions with your healthcare providers before you were in the situation is really going to give yourself um, a, a leg up. You're really going to feel more at ease because you know what you're going to expect. And a lot of the anxiety is about not knowing what to expect. Yes. Fear of the unknown big time. Like we it already is. have a fear of unknown, like in regards to life, but like now you're bringing a baby and it's going through your canal of the, like of your uterus or sorry, your vagina. And it's just like, it's a different, we're not, we don't know these feelings, especially if you're first time for everything scary. It is scary. And that's why knowledge is power in these situations. So the more that you can learn about it and as terrifying as it may seem, think about and, and educate yourself on what are the things that can go wrong? And if they are going wrong, how do I want to deal with them? How, how should our healthcare team deal with this? Um, because like I said, oftentimes in childbirth, you're going to have different options and each of those options are going to have some risks associated with them. Mm-hmm. And you need to make those choices that are best for you. And sometimes you'll hear stories of women who have extreme intuition on their side, knowing exactly what they want and that that is the best decision for them. And they have healthcare practitioners who are trying to force them away from their desires. Um, whether that be for fear of lawsuits, I don't know. Um, but if you do want to refuse a treatment, that's your right. The hospital and the, uh, the doctors may require you to sign a waiver mm-hmm. saying that you are going against medical advice. Um, and, and that's okay. It doesn't give them carte blanche to um, treat you with any disrespect or not to follow your wishes. And they're still held to a standard of care um, So it's not that you could never have recourse if something were to go wrong. It would be that you wouldn't have recourse for that specific thing if that specific thing led to whatever the damages might be. Right. But if you say, um, you know, I don't want some intervention and then that midwife or doctor is upset and now you're not getting your regular checks. No one's coming to, to monitor your situation. All of a sudden they've removed whatever monitors they were using um, or they fell below the, the, the regular standard of care for everything else. Then you still have as much recourse as anybody else. And sometimes in this process, you really do just have to trust your intuition. I believe that. And is there an example or have you has like, because like, these are all really great tips. These are all really great resources. This is great for, to put, to note in the back of our minds that like, you know, we have the power to choose what is the best course of action for us. Um, has any, have you seen anything come from the other side where someone made a choice and then the doctors acted a certain way or neglected a certain patient, or have you seen anything like that? Or has, I don't even know what exactly what I'm trying to ask. I'm just trying to show like that, you know, like I want people to know that they could trust their, their instincts, trust their intuition for what they believe that they need and see that, you know, doctors are not always right. Nurses are not always right. You know, your body best. Like, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that happens a lot. Um, You know, one medical course of treatment will be recommended and a person will refuse. And that was the best 
course of action in that situation. Um, does it happen the other way around? I'm sure that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still followed your own intuition at that point and can, can be comfortable because you've made those decisions. Um, and some people may be more extreme than others. So some people may be willing to risk, risk more than you or I um, or the next person. But those are still their choices. They have those rights. That's beautiful. And it's good to know. I want, I want people to take away from this that like, if you feel strongly about something, don't keep that inside, be able to speak your opinions, do your research is the biggest thing I basically have like taken away from this, because that's where you're going to feel empowered. But my last two questions basically are like, what do you do if your rights are violated? Like what happens? Like just say if you know something that happened during your procedure or during a checkup or during something, what, what's the course of action that they should take? Like, what should they do? What's the first thing? Yeah. The first thing that you're going to want to do, hold on. My dog is barking. It's okay. (laughs) This is, this is the way it is these days. Much better. (laughs) Okay. So really there, there's two things that I want to talk about here. One is what to do during a rights violation and then what to do after During a rights violation, if you know that something is not right and you're being forced or coerced or someone's not listening to you, for example, you're saying, no, 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 I don't want an episiotomy while the episiotomy is being cut, your rights are being violated and there's not in that potential moment really anything you can do about that. If you have a big decision to make and you're being forced or pressured, ask for more time. Um, you might get a response that there is no time. We have to do this. Generally, there is time. You can, um, as long as it's not an emergency situation, um, you generally have a few moments to think about it. You want to get the information before you make your decision. Look people in the eye and tell them exactly what you want. Um, If it's um, something that you're refusing, like an intervention, and you're getting a lot of pushback, make some notes about that. I mean, sometimes this is very difficult to stop once the the ball is rolling because you are in a position of weakness. You are very, very vulnerable when you are delivering a baby. Um, And so that can be very tough to advocate for yourself at that time. But if you feel that something is off, um, start taking notes, start keeping track of what's going on. Having a doula present can always, you know, help be helpful because you have someone in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, You may want to, in some cases, and this is um, right off the American um, Birth Rights Bar Association, um, is to to make some recordings of kind of what the climate is, what's going on, conversations with the the medical staff at that time, um, just to kind of protect yourself. So like I said, during a rights violation, it depends on what the situation is. There are very, very limited situations where a doctor can actually take over and act against your consent. Um, It does have to be emergency and there has to be nobody able to provide consent on your behalf. So even if it is an emergency and you're saying, no, don't do this, the doctor has to respond with, okay. Another thing that I wanted to add to that is there, these 
rights aren't being violated equally across the population. Mm. So if you are Black, Indigenous, a person of color, if you're from a lower socioeconomic group, if you have a language barrier, um, or if you're very young, if you are alone in the birth process, if you don't have a birth partner, you're more likely to have your rights violated. And so all of these things play into it as well. And so again, knowing that that is the case and arming yourself before you're in the situation is very important because like I said, once a right is being violated, it is very hard to advocate for yourself during that. And that can lead to not only birth trauma, which is when um, there are injuries as a result of the birth, but also a traumatic birth experience. And that's more where there's psychological um, damages done because of the way that you were treated or the loss of control of the situation and the lack of being heard. So if a a rights violation has taken place and um, you want to do something about it, and I do... I do advocate for speaking up and speaking out because the more that this is talked about, as difficult as it may be, the more that we have the power to change this culture. Mm. Everyone, including hospital staff, midwives and doctors are putting up with these violent behaviors. They will continue. It allows the culture to continue. And that is something that we don't want. Um, You can go to places like... um, obstetricjustice.com to read real stories of people's rights who have been violated locally. That's all within Canada. Um, And you will see stories from healthcare practitioners who decided not to speak up as well. Um, So as hard as it may be, the first step is to, to speak up. And that could just simply be to a therapist to help you get over the situation. Um, It could be to another doctor if you have a physical problem. I would always recommend filing a complaint with the hospital so they can at least investigate. Oftentimes, nothing is going to come from that, um, but it could. It could change it, and it could change the practice for another woman out there. Filing a complaint with the regulating bodies is also an option, so that would be Um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, it would be the College of uh, Midwifery um, or the Nursing Professional Body. And you can make complaints and they will be investigated as well. Um, Again, sometimes nothing comes out of those investigations, but if something does come out of those investigations and you have helped somebody um, not be in the situation that you were, then it is a big win. Another thing that you can do if your rights have been violated and there are... um, some damages. So that would, in, in the litigation context, damages are, are things like pain and suffering or in the human rights context, um, loss of dignity. Uh, those things are compensable. So you can receive some form of compensation for that. And if you have been injured as a result, um, you know, something like the, the husband stitch or um, mm. during the, the birth process, um, forceps or a vacuum are used without your consent and the baby has injuries, those things um, are medical negligence. They're not just human rights violations. Um, any lack of con- any procedure that is carried out on you with lack of consent is medical malpractice. 
um, depending on what the damage is done to you and the negative outcomes is whether or not it would make sense to file a formal uh, legal complaint. Another part of this, which, you know, it, it falls under the umbrella of obstetric violence that hasn't really been talked about today is sexual assault. How and common is that? Is that pretty common or? Again, it's like the, the bad apple situation. Mm-hmm. Most doctors, most nurses, most healthcare providers, most midwives are, are great. And they're going to handle everything with the, the respect and dignity that you would expect. Um, and then there are the ones that aren't. And it only takes one. You say it takes one OB. Think of the hundreds of patients that person has treated over the course of their lifetime. And that's generally what you see happening is it's not just one patient. It would be multiple patients from one doctor. Um, and so that can multiply pretty quickly, especially if yes. they have uh, hospital privileges at a number of hospitals and then yes. a clinic as well. So, um, again, in that case, you're going to want to make all of your regular complaints to all of those areas. A lawsuit is always an option. Um, and that's criminal as well. So you're going to want to file a complaint with the police. hundred percent. My last question, and it's, we've been talking about this question, like the whole way through the podcast. So this is just like basically a summary because out of everything that you, all the great stuff that you've been able to give us today, you know, how can people like pregnant people or people are looking to become pregnant? Like how can they empower themselves? Yeah. Knowledge, knowledge is power. And so that's the most important takeaway from all of the, the birth rights movement is to empower yourself before you're put in a situation of danger and to know what your decisions are and to know why you're making those decisions. Because if you haven't read any of the literature, um, I keep coming back to the epidural because it's so easy. It's Mm -hmm. such an easy example. Um, You watch TV and you have this horrific experience of what childbirth will be like. Um, it's going to be very awful, very painful, lots of yelling and screaming and sweating. And yes, that can be the case, but there are also very um, peaceful and yes. uh, empowering births. And the the difficulties of childbirth are really glorified in the media. Yes. And there's yes. not a lot of discussion around um, peaceful and, and easy births. And reading about those peaceful, easy births can be very calming to Mm -hmm. the soul. Um, so that's a a good step to start. And, um, knowing that not everybody has a horrific birth experience, even though that's what you expect because of everything that you see in the media. And of course, if you had a very difficult childbirth, um, those are the ones that people just keep talking about because it's way more interesting than it was very relaxing and my baby just popped out. (laughs) I hear you, especially like the people that have had it hard. And then the other, then you have the other side of the story where someone had it easy. They don't even want to tell the person that had it hard that it was like, it was good. I really like thought that I really felt empowered by this process. That's the last thing they want to hear. They want to hear like, yeah, I know it sucked. Like blah, blah, blah. Like it's really, Misery it's loves company. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, but you are so right that like, I mean, it's what we fill our minds with at the, at the end of the day. Like if you want to have this peaceful birth, like how can you make it easier for yourself and understand the process? So you know what to expect 
so that you're not caught off guard and sh shot sideways where it's just like, and then that, that's where a lot of the de decisions of like what starts happening starts to get flustered and you don't even know what you want at the end of the exactly. day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So arming yourself with that knowledge beforehand is really important. And there are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of really good resources, um, that are available. Most of these things are also discussed in a birth class. If you take one mm -hmm. now, they're not typically covered by OHIP. So a lot of people don't take birth classes. I have found that's one positive thing of COVID is that birth classes are now being offered online for free. Uh, and I would recommend everyone to take advantage of that because they do talk about a lot of the pros and cons of all the interventions. And you should know all the pros and cons about the interventions and then follow it up by listening to a podcast on evidence-based births podcast, where it will give you every research, um, study done on that particular intervention and what the outcomes are and what it, you know, whether or not, um, it will impact the statistics for positive birth outcomes. If the baby's more likely to have a seizure, if whatever the, the intervention is, it is a, a very excellent resource. No way am I affiliated with them. Um, but it is a very excellent resource if you're looking for the literature on the statistics and the research. So I think that's, what's very important in guiding your birth decisions is to look at the hard facts in the research, because every mom wants to have a safe and healthy delivery. And there are different ideas of how that is going to happen. And so if you know inside all of those uh, possible interventions, possible risks, and how to mitigate them and to reduce your risks to have the most successful outcome, then you're probably going to take those steps. But if you don't know what you don't know, if you don't know that um, this intervention increases your chance of a negative outcome or that intervention in this circumstance increases your, um, your chance of a negative outcome, then how can you make those decisions informed? I agree with you. Thank you so much for being such a light, especially at the beginning of the year in a pandemic to help, help women figure out how to make pregnancy a lot better for them, understanding their rights, understanding how to be empowered by their decisions, especially because things don't always have to be exactly what someone says that it has to be. Um, how can people find more about you? Yeah. And so there is something, sorry, that you oh, just said in there that no was problem. really important. And it's talking about feeling comfortable with the process. And that is such a big, big challenge, especially if you don't look into these issues beforehand, because if you don't know any of the um, outcomes or the research or the possibilities of what might happen when you get to the hospital and it's just all the unknown, then it can be a lot scarier than it needs to be. And that's when you fall into that. Um, I just do whatever I'm told. Yeah. Mentality. Because I know you I can know fall into that. Honestly, just because I don't know the right decision at that time because I haven't looked into it because I didn't know that there was even a possibility. And then, so I follow I found along. that the same. Yeah. I found that the same during my first pregnancy is that I didn't know what I didn't know. And so slowly I started to come across these things. Um, I thankfully had a lot of friends who had already had babies. So I had some ideas. Um, but at the same time, I was 
completely unaware of any of the information. And if I hadn't gone off down that tangent of doing the research and looking at what my options were and why, like, why would I choose a midwife over um, an OB, for Mm -hmm. example? And I didn't know what I wanted to do at the beginning. And then I researched it and I knew that um, there were lower chances of having a C-section if you have a midwife um, and a whole other host of of, um, positive benefits of one-on-one contact. And so I said, well, that seems like a good idea. And I talked to people that had used midwives and I researched it and I, I talked to, you know, professionals in that area and, and weighed the pros and cons. I got extraordinarily lucky because I have, um, autoimmune disorder mm-hmm. and because of that complication an autoimmune disorder that, that affects pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, I got to stay with my midwives as long as there were no complications, which also meant that I had an OB looking over my shoulder on about a monthly basis to make sure that everything was progressing normally. So I did get the benefit of having both um, to some extent. And that was also very comforting. The most comforting for my mother, because she really didn't agree with my decision to go with a midwife. My family was thinking that I was uh, crazy woo woo uh, <laughs> off my rocker. And I knew personally that was the right choice for me, but that can be one of the things that is difficult in this whole process is the external pressures that you get mm-hmm. about your decisions. And so that's another challenge. So to answer your question, you can reach me on um, Facebook. I am the Guelph injury lawyer on Facebook or Catherine Shearer that will come up, should come up together. I'm on Instagram at, uh, Guelph injury lawyer on, uh, LinkedIn, just Catherine Shearer. Um, I'm sure you can put my email address Holy in your well. show notes and a link to my website. Um, and you know, if you have any questions about your rights, your birth, your birth experience, any of those things, please feel free to contact me. It is something I'm very passionate about. I can help you also find the resources that you might need and the healthcare professionals that might be beneficial for you. Um, And if you have unfortunately experienced a violation of your birthright or medical malpractice, uh, especially in the context of delivering a baby, um, you can absolutely always reach out to me to find out what your your rights at that point might be um, in moving forward. And for everyone, there is always um, the opportunity to contact and have discussions and conversations with me without any charge. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for, you know, giving people like an outlet to come and talk to you because that's the, one of the biggest things is that we all feel alone, especially when stuff like this happens. And that's the last thing that we need because we need to talk about this. We need to make it known that this is, we need to take action on ourselves and not let this continue and that we have our own birthrights and we have our own plan and that we can really start feeling empowered by this. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you for all your knowledge and tips and resources to help us. And all this is going to be in the show notes. Um, if you guys have like with, in regards to the evidence-based birth podcast, um, evidence-based birth. Um, yeah, that, that I already said that one, the obstetricsjustice.com that's going to be on there. Um, we're going to have it all so that you guys can start educating yourselves and feeling empowered about your birth. Thank you so much. 
And thank you so much for having me. All right, guys, I am sending you guys so much love till next time. And as always, the only way to get this podcast out is you. I thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart because it would not be where it is without you guys. If you find any value out of this podcast, please like, share, and rate and subscribe. It honestly would mean the world to me. And that is how you can give some love to this podcast back. All right. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, keep being amazing and keep being you.